let everyone know they're being recorded. Oh, great. Let's let's get into finally uh, the moment we've all been waiting for. Uh, oh, yeah, it took us about an hour and a half to get through the plots of the books. Uh, it's it's difficult to do. I think part of the reason I at least wanted to talk about Harry Potter is it's a good stepping stone to both talk about uh, fantasy adventures, the difference between books and their adaptations as films or TV shows. Um, this one, I guess both of us have a some sort of particular nostalgia for. I think in recent years, it's fallen out of favor as a franchise, both because of the failure of the new movies, like the Fantastic Beast movies, in addition to the fact that J.K. Rowling, the author of the books, um, has decided to make one particular social issue something that she wants, to, it's just a hill she wants to die on uh, about trans people for seemingly no reason. It's it's really unclear why that's a hill she needs to die on. Whatever, we don't need to get into turfs and things. Uh, and I'm not going to defend J.K. Rowling because, by and large, she seems like a deeply unpleasant person in real life. And certainly after the release of the last Harry Potter book, um, her status as a near billionaire has probably just made her into an intolerable individual. So, yeah, um, I'm not sure where you want to start talking about these books, talking about the... I did want to also mention, which we will like ease into explaining to our audience that we're we're gonna with this new format change things so that that first part is gonna be us like really just giving the broad strokes. So like if you really want like a definitive explanation of it of like a movie or a book or something like obviously like you should just read it for yourself um but like it's not meant to it's not meant to fill in all of the different crevices and cracks like that first part so if you get frustrated with how quickly we're moving or we gloss over your favorite character uh sorry but yeah that's not what we're doing <clears throat> no that's sorry no, about we're, it we're we're trying to get a difference between summary episodes for people who vaguely want to hear us analyze a piece of media um, without having read or watched it. But yeah, I, in, in this case, I would definitely recommend, even I, in 2024, reading the Harry Potter books. Yeah, if you haven't, if you haven't read them. Um, one, just because the experience itself is enjoyable, uh, I would say for the most part um like if if you like stories i mean if if you don't like stories then i, I wouldn't wouldn't read them but anyway well, specifically book two through six are just reasonably good mysteries where the solution to the mystery is pretty interesting yeah and also they are just very popular um pieces of media so like that in and of itself like you'll have just more of more clarity i guess around I don't know, references, which is not necessarily a reason to read a story, but whatever, it's, it's an aside to it. Um, this is the highest selling book series of all time. So Yeah, yeah. So um, where I would start is just basically kind of where you were explaining where 
this story is very much a building Zerman. It is the hero's journey, the the coming of age as well aspects. Mm-hmm. It's it's both of those combined. Um, and even even though it it fails at times, um, which we kind of outlined in part one somewhat, um, the experience is really enjoyable. And I would say like whole whole books of it just are are great. Like they're they're an enjoyable ride and experience. Uh, the characters are really are unique um some of the concepts are really really interesting and as as you kind of said like we've used this term before but the gestalt um certainly rings true um with some of these stories as the story is is better than the sum of its parts and quite frankly some of the parts are um very enjoyable to just even think about and experience which is why why the the books are within uh, like theme parks. Um, certain areas of theme parks have been like recreated, right? So you have like Hogsmeade, um, you have like Butterbeer, which is within Hogsmeade. You have like um, all of these sort of like touchstones within the Harry Potter world in um, what is it, Warner Brothers Studio or like Universal Studios? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I've never been, but Universal. Yeah. Um, but it's it's like it's like hinging upon that factor of like nostalgia and then bringing that into like a consumer consumer perspective or uh, capitalist perspective rather and where obviously they're profiting off of it. Um, but at the same time, like there's a reason why they're able to do that is because so many people are hyped up on it. And the reason why they're so hyped up, sorry, that was a really long winded way of getting to the fact that. J.K. Rowling's imagery that she uses, as well as world building, um, is hinged upon these unique aspects that she infuses in her world that the characters interact with. And the way that they use uh, whatever those magical items are or the magical places is just really enjoyable to sort of imagine yourself basking in, as well as like experiencing through the eyes uh, of the characters. So like that to me is what's exciting about these stories is like reliving that that magic um, of the different scenes uh, and and the the magical items that they interact with along the way. Yeah, and they operate like even as individual books, they operate really well as like a complete story circle where the cycle begins with world as normal, which is world as misery, and then world of wonder, world of excitement, world of adventure, world of tragedy, and then success returning to world of normalcy and sort of suffering. Because like Harry in the real world versus Harry at Hogwarts is basically like his real world is just him being abused by his aunt and uncle and then his escape from them to get to the wizarding world, which is both interesting but dangerous, like more dangerous than his regular world, uh, is where those elements come in. I, I think the strongest part of these books, which which I described before, is their sense of mystery, because it gives Harry both a world to exist in and a world for you to enjoy, because that's the whole point of fantasy is basically to escape into something that is completely fantastical. Um, 
but then at the same time, uh, you know, there has to be that adventure. So each of these books has a very clear call to action. Like book one is basically like, what is the secret being hidden in the in the castle? And the secret is there's a rock that makes you immortal. Book two, what is making students get petrified? And it's a big snake. Book three, why is this guy hellbent on killing Harry? And then it's like, well, he's not actually. It was a rat disguised as a a man disguised as a rat who faked his death to trick the guy to get the time travel to make sure that the hippo, the griffin could fly him home. I know I'm making <laughs> fun of the third book, but like all that convolution does work well at delivering like a pretty good ending. It's just trying to describe that is so much worse than just experiencing it. Yes. Either by reading it or by watching the movie, both I think are which really phenomenal. Oh yeah, um, the the whole situation when when they're at Hagrid's, I believe they go to Hagrid's to like just console him because Buckbeak was like killed. I'm pretty sure, and that is kind of the thing that like triggers everything. But from there to Ron being attacked and dragged under the Whomping Willow, um, which brings up another point that Rowling does a pretty good job of asserting certain magical elements around the castle and the grounds which she builds upon in future books um like the whomping willow for instance like the forbidden forest like hogsmeade and she she keeps like pushing pushing things up from there obviously in the later books some of it falls apart because there's like a lot more deus ex machina and a lot more characters who you like are vaguely aware of or just have never been mentioned at all and you're like all right like maybe you could have woven this this aspect in somewhere else like even just harry walking through the library and like seeing a statue of you know i don't know xenophilius whatever whatever the hell their name is or something good yeah right like but i i don't know if that's I don't know if that comes down to her not having had it planned out from the beginning or just I, I don't know. I truly have no idea. Um, but it anyway, it's like the the last two books were definitely written together. It seems like the, there's a big difference between the fourth and fifth book and the fourth book and the previous three. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's a good both, way of separating them. Yeah, both in terms of style, prose plotting and then the overarching narrative um because the first three are definitely like written at the same like sort of consecutively where she didn't necessarily have the full thing planned out but she knew she wanted to keep them contained which is why all three of them have the same formula of harry starts in shitty place goes to school goes through school things winds up in the hospital wins the world cup or what the wizarding special i'm the bestest boy and then goes back home um there was something you said in there that i wanted to respond to but i've tricked myself i think um i i I think the fifth book this is probably what i wanted to say is the fifth book is where things sort of hinge where you get the best elements of Rowling as a storyteller, both in terms of 
creating new interesting places in the fantasy world and the worst parts of her writing, which has fallen back on things like deus ex machinas, um, really bad MacGuffins and plot contrivances and like bigger things that are meant to symbolize some greater, deeper mystery that are actually really, really simple. Like the prophecy that Harry is the chosen one. Um, or just like arbitrarily killing a character because you need there to be some sort of deeper emotional stakes, despite the fact that they aren't really there. So Sirius's death feels impactful, but I think it would feel more impactful if Sirius was actually a part of the stories because Sirius is a very limited part of the stories and it's really only his connection to his parents that makes his death feel like it matters in any any sort of way. Hmm. I never thought of that, but I would agree with that, yeah. I mean, these are meant for children, so ultimately a lot of the deaths are going to hit harder because death in general is going to hit harder than if you're like 60 years old and you've had, you know, 500 people you know die. The death of Sirius Black isn't going to matter because you just didn't know who this guy was. Right. Uh, but yeah, the specifically in that fifth book, I really like the like there's always this theme bubbling through the first four or so novels of like authoritarianism and how authority is bad. Like anything that tries to stop Harry as a subject of authority is wrong, which I really like that. It's just chaotic. It's like break all the rules. It doesn't matter. Be a chaos child like Harry and Ron. Yeah, I mean, the. The the books is the books are pushing that uh narrative as well. Like like be a rebel. Um the rules don't apply to you, or if they do apply to you, they only like only part of them applies to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Basically, which is obviously dangerous or <laughs> definitely can be dangerous, right? Depending on how you're using that. But uh yeah. Um, well it, it... I don't know if I want to get into a rant about the end of the books or not. I think it gets dangerous when it tries to describe what you're rallying against. Because mm. ultimately, like the the themes of like freedom versus authority are interesting when it's about a kid trapped in a boarding school who has yearned for freedom his whole life because he's literally locked in a, a cupboard. So like him breaking free from that prison only to learn he's in another where it's like you have to go to classes and there's bars on the windows and you can't leave the school grounds to go to the bar with your friends. Like there's always these very formulaic stages that Harry has to break through to get some new level of freedom. But then the books go off the rails when he finally gets freedom. Like by the sixth and seventh books, like the seventh book, he's just free to do whatever he wants. And that's where there's no structure and the books become really dull because it's just Harry in a tent with his friends and they're like, where do we get the MacGuffin? Yeah, there's a lot. There's like there's definitely way too much talking in in that book. Uh, I sent you the it's just a storytelling techniques thing. You can click on it. Why are you doing the old man thing where you glower and squint your eyes into the screen? You you mentioned Deus Ex Machina, and so I I wanted to to bring this up just to see how many different ones are used, but you can look at it later. Anyway, yeah, there's there's too much dialogue in that fifth book. Um, Is it the fifth or, or, sorry, the seventh book? The, The seventh book where... 
they're literally just in tents or like in the woods just heckling each other and trying to figure out yeah trying to figure out what it is that they're uh gonna do next well it like problem is in trying to do something new it highlights all of rowling's flaws as a writer yes uh sorry to interrupt you there two things uh the tension that she attempts to build in the seventh book from their dialogue and from them being lost in the woods and trying to figure out what's next, it is glaringly just her trying to figure out where the story should go and she doesn't know what to do. So she she definitely should have had something else happen to sort of like push those events along. Whereas in the other stories, obviously she could rely on the magical castle or the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher or whatever element she had in the story that pushed it along. In the seventh book, the that thing that pushed it along was obviously um the the magic wand um and the story behind that. The second thing is as a as we said before, the the magic wand and the story behind that should have been woven in um before that. Yeah. Well, yeah, earlier on, no no doubt. I think that's the biggest problem is the significance of all of the MacGuffins is irrelevant. Because, like, I, we definitely, um, I don't think we've necessarily described MacGuffins. Like, it's a an object or a person or an event that is integral to the plot, but is insignificant by itself. Like, in a vacuum, it's meaningless. And so, like, the goblet of Hufflepuff is literally just a cup, but in the plot, it is a thing that contains Voldemort's soul because of a murder he committed. So even though they have to destroy it in order to kill Voldemort, like there's this larger point to it. Ultimately, it's just we need to break into a bank to destroy a cup because we it's, it, that's just going to be 100 pages now. We just got to break into a bank, blow up a cup. And that's this entire book. Like, Opening the book up with them being like, there's these things called the Deathly Hallows, and there's a really powerful gun, and there's a rock that lets you look at ghosts, and there's a blanket that makes you invisible. Yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna lie. Um that that this book is probably where me as a kid started hmm, how do I put this? Started struggling with history. Because when things became too mm-hmm. convoluted in history class and my teacher didn't bother explaining why these things mattered, my brain just turned off. They're just like, oh, yeah, and also uh, Woodrow Wilson was the president. And also this other thing was happening at the time. And I'm like, that's that's cool. But like, how do these things connect? Like, can you like like obviously in a story, you want to show them how these connect. You don't want to just be telling us how they connect. And the story is literally just telling you how they connect. It's like, oh, yeah, there's another book here. Read this book. Um, And in reading it, you're you're just with Harry either reading it or inside of the book. Right. Because doesn't he like go in the past or he's in the book somehow? I forget um, how that unfolds. He's he's in a memory or something, um, which is fine. Of what? Uh, With the like Elder Wand and like the the contrivances within no, they literally like, are just they just read a book okay got it which 
in like, the movie, like said, it's like a whole animated sequence where they're like, it's the title of the movie, therefore it's important. Yeah. Um. But anyway, I, I don't remember where I was going with that. My bad. Um, well, no, I, I I know what you mean. Like, if you don't have the full context, oh, of why yeah, the with, object is important. Exactly. So so like, as soon as you have like seven objects or seven characters but you don't explain or show like how they're connected like people people are just like that's fucking great you have a magic rock good job and Mm -hmm. here's a big kite that flies in the sky and now you got a a magic helm like it's like introducing new characters in a show and then one of them dies and you're like we don't care about ed in fact now i'm rooting for ed to get his head cut off like, please just get rid of this person. Like, we don't want this person in the show anymore. Like, I've tried to explain, I've tried explaining this before, but like, I've just seen movies or shows like all the time where I'm like, you're trying to make it dramatic or, or tension filled, and no one gives a shit that this person just died. Or like, the drama is, it, it's just over the top. Um, See the turtle of enormous girth. On his shell, he holds the earth. Oh, my God. What is his that? thoughts are slow, but always kind. He holds us all within his mind. Is this from the the book? No, this is... It, it's it's a similar... Th- it, it's a Stephen King thing. Okay. Um, so Stephen King... This is, this is an aside that I swear to God makes sense. <laughs> So for those who are fans of Stephen King, who is an all over the place author, Stephen King's books are all in the same universe. So he's <laughs> he's written like, I don't know, 100 novels at this point. They're all connected. And there are some really interesting visual um, graphics and videos that show how they're all connected in a way that is legitimately interesting. But the actual minutia of how they're connected is like, gobbledygook like complete nonsense just jabberwocky levels of of no meaning and part of it is that the entire world like the universe that these books are built on is on top of a gigantic omnipotent kind turtle and they say that quote when they describe it and so like jesus all, all of the elements that connect things like there are a whole series like the um, Dark Tower is like seven books, and it has just as many nonsensical MacGuffins as the Harry Potter books do. And then it's just obscurely connected to like three other book series that are equally weird fantasy stuff. And then the whole time is just on the back to hold the earth. Like it's, I, I don't know if that explanation necessarily makes sense, where it's like technically it's all related, but how it gets there is not clearly defined to be interesting and so you hearing that all of stephen king's books are like about a god turtle that connects the world like it just doesn't mean anything yeah and so if if every book here's a part that's specifically frustrating is that the diary of tom riddle is a horcrux right Mm -hmm. so that could have meant that every book had a horcrux and the story accidentally was about Harry finding the Horcrux, which is both a source of evil power and something interesting that relates to a plot and has a sort of meta contextual form explanation to it. 
because in a way it's about how taking things literally at their word is wrong. Like there should be a deeper analysis. You don't need to listen to books and it relates to Harry's struggle against authority. Like there's some right. deeper o- interesting only, stuff with the diary. Or reading books, like only reading books is bad. Not acting on the books is a problem. Like something like that you mean as well? Yeah. 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 I get what you're saying. Um, but yeah, it like there just needed to be something else, a through line, because when you have all of this stuff come in at the end in the sixth book where it's like, OK, the next book's a fetch quest of a bunch of objects. It just you lose everything. The scale gets out of proportion, like you have to scale up your world more logically for things to make sense. You can't just have the end be a big battle with all the characters and have that be sad. I'm sure there are plenty of people who love the books. I mean, the, the, like the last book, even. Uh, I'm just not one of them. Think about it like the, uh, the last the last book. Would be fine if it was like a summary or like a like a guide, like a guidebook to the stories itself. But I, I, I definitely wish there was a, a better sort of way of cinching up the stories. Well, I haven't even talked about yet why um, I think the th- this is just a complaint about structure um, mm. and some of Rowling's flaws. Because there are other elements to that last book that just fail. Like Rowling is really bad at inner character personal conflict when it's not structured around an existing formula. And so like there are arguments between Harry and Ron in books four five and six that are all supported by their competition for either women or good grades or another thing that relates to them being in like a prep school that or they're there or just them being their their like male egos or whatever Mm -hmm. yeah but in book seven it's just their male egos and the fact that yes locket makes them jealous because they both want to fuck hermione or something yeah and it's it's like, could you like be less of a hack, Rowling? Could you get some original material in here? Yeah, her deciding that that's what she was gonna like have the linchpin be, like that's the best that she came up with. Really, really hurt. Um, yeah. But there's there's other stuff that's really bad in the seventh book, like the fact that it recontextualizes Dumbledore. So Dumbledore. Oh, yeah, we should we should probably talk, talk a little bit more about Dumbly. Dumbly, Let's get into Dumbledore, because, yeah, in my summary, I was highly critical of him. Um, So the fact that they have all of the elements of the the first like five books where it ends with Dumbledore giving Harry Potter like nuggets of information that hint to some larger important thing, which turns out to just not exist. Um, Dumbledore's an idiot. So Dumbledore knows roughly all along about the Horcruxes and he just wastes time. Like he knows Voldemort's going to come back, doesn't do anything to stop him. Like, invites Quirrell to the school and knows Voldemort is on Quirrell, doesn't try to stop him because he's like, yeah, he, Horcrux. Like, he, he literally does know that. He also deliberately tortures Harry. Like, everything is a basically just something that a scenario Dumbledore creates to level Harry up rather than just taking Harry under his wing and being like, okay, listen, Harry, the world sucks and is scary. Like, you got to learn how to be a better fighter. 
And I guess vaguely the explanation is Harry needed to learn it all on his own so that he didn't become evil or like Voldemort. But it seems like the odds that he would be that way increase by Dumbledore being weird and unhelpful. Yes. But then that's just kind of the explanation of Deathly Hallows. It's like, well, Dumbledore was just a weird, flawed guy all along and just didn't know how to help Harry. And everyone being in awe of him is only due to his power and nothing else. And he was kind of corrupted by his own power and incompetence. Yeah. But then just having it be like Dumbledore was gay and he he didn't stop Voldemort earlier because he felt a connection to him similar to his love of uh, Gellert Grindelwald. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Well, I guess that's a, a vague explanation of dumb analysis of Dumbledore as a how competent rube. How is Dumbledore being gay revealed? That was through a tweet. That it it's like, implied in the book. Like, it's definitely implied in the seventh book that he had a, a relationship with Grindelwald, but it's not explicitly said. Rowling did, I believe, confirm it in a tweet saying, like, no, 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 my books are very, very gay. A lot of people were saying they weren't gay, but they were very gay. <laughs> Trump is now Rowling. They're the same person. You can't convince me otherwise. <laughs> Both tone-deaf billionaires who make bad business decisions. Actually, I guess that's not true. Rowling makes a lot of really good business decisions. Like writing those Fantastic Beast films and tanking them at the box office by saying trans people didn't exist. Yeah. Anyway. I I definitely don't want to get into those books or movies. Um, But... Increasingly uh, bad movies that are irrelevant. Yeah, We don't need to... So I think we we should move into the sort of like adaptation conversation that we wanted to to get to and sort of assert um, just because we're going to be doing this quite frequently with adaptations. Um, you 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 could like a listener could definitely look at it like compare contrast, but I want to get into to other conversations than just compare contrast sort of like why even why even try to adapt um the story itself like it is obviously the studio is going to do it for money right but i was going to say that's the only reason to ever do it is money but right the studio is doing that but like i i mean chris columbus probably wanted to um make money from it but like his vision for adapting the books like he he clearly had a vision to recreate it um in his own style but also trying to remain true to the story itself and the characters um where to begin with this i guess um from an adaptation standpoint when they began production of these uh obviously like the casting was very critical um in deciding who would be harry um and as the books were released then obviously he would need to like grow older with harry 
for the movies to work. Um, I would say, by and large, they did a, a really excellent job of casting for most of the main characters. Um, Ron is is fine, but I guess that's kind of also... I don't have anything against Rupert Grint, to be clear. Um, He's for sure the worst actor of all. Yeah. Both as right. a child and as an adult. Yeah, Harry's pretty tough sometimes as well. <laughs> um, but that might be less from um Radcliffe's acting and more from just Harry as a character like it being kind of difficult to embody what what it is he's trying to do because there are also times where it's confusing like what Harry is even feeling or what he's supposed to be doing um I think Hermione is probably like the the best casting of the three and I mean, her character also is pretty interesting throughout. Um, yeah, I mean, thankfully, she's not just like a, a typical woman trope, I guess, throughout for for most of it. She is not, I would say, um, which I think really helps the the general plot and the the stories around it so from from a casting perspective and then obviously like as you go throughout the rest of the books um they kind of fold in like higher level uh actors and actresses as well right like you have well david thewlis isn't necessarily a high level like acclaimed actor but he's solid he, he's definitely a high level acclaimed actor oh okay I, I mean i like him a lot i i didn't know whether he was or wasn't um, no, he's super, super famous. Just maybe not amongst like the American public of people born after like the nineties. Uh McGonagall, um, the actress who plays McGonagall is heralded as like one of the the best British um or Irish uh actresses. Um I forget her name. I also forget Maggie the, Smith. Yeah, Maggie Smith. I knew her last name was like Williams or, or so, something generic like that. Um, she's fantastic. Uh, the first Dumbledore dies after the second movie, right? Mm-hmm. Richard Harris. Richard Harris dies, and then they have to get another guy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what's that guy's name? The guy who plays Sirius Black. The most famous actor in all of these movies. <laughs> Do you not remember his name either? Gordon? Gordon. Gary Oldman? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gordon from those Batman pictures. <laughs> yeah. Gary Oldman uh, is also great. And anyway, like the casting is, is solid. Um, I was yeah, I mean, in the background for those movies was basically that. Rowling sold the rights to the first four movies and demanded like the only thing in her contract was basically that the whole cast had to be British or Irish. Yes. They weren't allowed to cast Americans because even though it was going to be like a pseudo American Warner Brothers production, she didn't want it to just be filled in by American actors doing bad British accents, which turned out was a really good call. That was definitely a very good call. Yeah. Thank God they didn't do that. 
Um, Malfoy is excellent as well. I think he's he's great in it. Uh, moving moving on to something else aside from casting, though, uh, as as you have mentioned before, or I guess I'm remembering the episode we recorded, but did not release. Um, there were several different directors, right? And Christopher Columbus, he directed the first two or three, the first two, mm-hmm. and then he basically stopped because uh, he wanted to spend more time with his family mm-hmm. and then that's when uh Karan took over for the third one or who took mm-hmm. over okay i forget who did the the fourth though mike newell right so then they they kept changing the director for the other ones unless someone did two in a row I don't remember. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the, the like, essentially the story is Columbus gets hired to do the first two because of his success with Home Alone and Mrs. Doubtfire. So it's known that he can work well with kids, and it's known that he can create something that feels nostalgic on impact. You mean Jingle so, All the Way? I don't. Did he do Jingle all the way? He was a producer on it. I don't know if he directed it. Oh, I was going to say, I didn't think, I didn't know he was involved with, with Jingle all the way. Can Can you still hear me? I, I can, yeah, why? Oh, I just got an alert about my audio changing somehow, so that's scary. No, sounds the same to me. All right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Chris Columbus's. He's an interesting guy, but at any rate, um, yeah, he made the first two. Like you said, he left to be with his family. Alfonso Cuaron came to do the third one. Every single one of these movies had like a long list of people who wanted to make it or they tried to get to direct them. Um, I think the third movie had a lot of pre-production done by Guillermo del Toro, who then switched it over to Alfonso Cuaron because there wasn't enough creative freedom. And then Mike Newell was brought in to do the fourth one because he'd made fantasy movies in the past. And then all the rest after the fourth are done by David Yates. Gotcha. David Yates is a yes man, a talentless hack with no creative talent for directing films, who just makes sure the the ship doesn't crash as it tries to go from one place to another, which makes those last few movies increasingly less interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know if we need to get into that now, but, um, in in terms of like on the whole adaptations, I think the story of the changes in the creative team behind the camera show a lot of the reason why those movies are of a very different quality or nature because the first two have a very magical sort of whimsical feel to them. Um, because of Chris Columbus, and they help to develop the world. They help to show Hogwarts. They develop a lot of characters. They get through a lot of stuff, but they're slower. The pacing is much slower. Um, they are definitively for children. Like they're a little bit tougher to rewatch because they're meant more for kids than for adults. Whereas that third one is made by, I think, a much more talented director in Alfonso Cuarón. 
but it's also made more for teenagers, sort of for adults. The story is a lot more complex. Kron does a really good job of balancing all of that. Um, the CGI evolves in that one, mm-hmm. and they manage to still adhere mostly to the story without sacrificing a lot. Um, the only real difference in the first three movies to the first three books is basically just having fewer characters. Um, the plots are pretty much all the same. There are a few scenes here or there that are cut out, but by and large, the story is exactly the same. The fourth one is where things start to change a lot, mainly because the fourth book is more than, I'm pretty sure, more than twice the length of the third. Um, Yeah, it's like exactly twice as long. Jeez. So they have to cut a lot of that shit out to make it work. Mike Newell is another guy that's like, I mean, not an amazing director by any means. Yeah, when you mentioned that earlier, I was going to say that that is a great, uh, great visual, both in the the books and done well in the movies, because I think part of the adaptation that goes well is Warner Brothers gets a lot of the like creature stuff right, because it's not all just nonsensical CGI. And when it turns into that, it's when it goes downhill. There's a lot of practical effects that I think work well in the first few movies that starts to go away in the last few, especially the last two. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, uh, your image on my screen was like completely glitched out. I was distracted. I just wanted to make sure everything was fine. That's why I was clicking around. Um, glitched out. We're good. Uh, Sirius is fine. Uh, he's he's still alive in in my heart. Oh, terrifying! This was what I wanted my background to be when we started to talk about the movies because uh, this character back here, who we didn't mention at all in the summary of the books or yet at all, is a ghost of the castle named Peeves, who is very funny, <laughs> great character. Not in the movies, which just makes the movies much worse, but has no relevance to the plot, so kind of hard to actually put him in. Is Nicholas Flamel in the movies? I don't he really is, remember. He is in the first two, and then I don't think he's in any of the others, partially because John Cleese probably was too expensive or unavailable, and because he had... Wait, Nicholas Flamel. Nicholas Flamel is in the... For, he's not even in the first book. He's just mentioned off screen. Mm. But he's not. He might be in the movie for a little bit. You mean Nearly Headless Nick? Yeah, yeah. Nearly yeah, Headless that's, Nick. That's who I thought of also. Nicholas gotcha. Flamel is the guy who used to own the in, Immortality Rock. Yes. And then yeah. gives it up and dies prior to the first book. God. The the Nicholas. GIF here is even is like kind of making me seasick because the camera itself kind of moves a little bit with him also moving. <laughs> Hopefully no one's good. watching this while driving. <laughs> well, don't do that anyway. Please don't watch yeah. this, this while you're driving. Just listen to it to the semi-soothing tones of voice. If there's one thing that we are sponsored by, it is not crash test dummies. No, uh, it's by, yeah, better not say it or we'll get demonetized because we make a lot of money off of this. Yes, 
we should mention our favorite and least favorite uh like aspects of the books we kind of already jumped to the least favorite parts mainly uh i, I didn't yet ma- mainly the seventh book and its contrivances somewhat didn't. somewhat rushed uh aspects as well as rowling lost in the woods lost in her own woods um i'll i'll let you go first for your i'm sure you have a laundry list that you've been waiting to 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 get out uh no i don't have a laundry list it's just my least favorite part of the books is the end of the whole series like the end of the seventh book and not the dumb epilogue either that's fine i just hate how they choose to defeat the villain and i've tried explaining this before about how the philosophy of a work of art can really um alter what the the meaning comes out to be at the end because ultimately the war being fought in the books between Harry and his friends and Voldemort is a battle between some kind of pseudo free society in the wizarding world and just a fascist authoritarianism that Voldemort wants mm-hmm. kind of backed up by racial cleansing because he wants to kill all of the non wizards and all of the impure wizards. So that's not good. Nazis. Um, Oh, so, Nazis aren't good. Oh no, Nazis are very bad. Oh, I'm I'm glad you glad you told me that. Yeah, don't Nazis are are bad people. I forgot about that one. Yeah, they just they they have too much hate in their heart. Not good. So anyway, yeah, um, we are we absolutely do not like Nazis here. To be to be to be clear, yeah, um, this podcast is firmly anti-Nazi. <laughs> It's a if tough we, line, tough line to draw in 2024, but like we any, drew it, we went there. Yeah, any any jokes that I make involving Nazis is is at their expense. Uh, it's 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 nothing more than that. Any any feigned ignorance around them as well. Um, no, uh, I, yeah, I before I don't want to get off ahead, track here, but basically the that's the the crux of the philosophy that these books choose is to be anti-nazi in a way um and so by defeating voldemort voldemort's presence in the wizarding world has created a power vacuum because he destabilized the ministry of magic he killed a bunch of very powerful wizards he committed terrorist acts in the normal world and the ending just kind of brushes over that like there's nothing about like rebuilding the world because the epilogue goes on to say that one, Harry Potter just becomes a cop, which is highly suspicious. And, <laughs> and two, the, they just made the Ministry of Magic go back to what it was. Like Harry is just a cop, a part of the same system, which allowed this festering of fascism to exist. Because the Ministry upholds all of the bad systems in the world, like the slavery of the elves, uh, the fact that wizards can create sentient life out of nothing, which then just causes innumerable problems for everyone, like, you know, magic cars that fly, that have minds of their own, giant monsters that do it. So nothing is solved by the end of the book. All they did was kill one guy. But that's sort of the background of the story and something that Rowling is not a deep enough thinker and probably not a good enough writer to address 
is the fact that this underlying current of fascism in her world will never be solved, at least not as long as the characters quote unquote live happily ever after. And so fundamentally, that's the problem I have with the end of the, the, the whole series is it just ends by brushing everything under the rug in a very childlike manner. And I understand it's written for children, but I think there is a better way to address fascism and the way that you root it out in a society and teach that to kids than to just say, then they beat Hitler and lived happily ever after. And right. by not solving that problem, you basically just teach kids once you, who are inherently good from birth, beat the bad man who's inherently bad from birth, well then, good guys win forever and ever, and the world just slips increasingly into gray morality, despite you know the fact that our content says that it's just good and bad, black and white. So that would be my least favorite part. So, so rant, rant over. What's uh? Yeah, what's the your... mo. Yeah, you're basically saying the mo-wow, the meaning of a work as a whole, gets a little bit misconstrued, um, if you will, or it could have had a, a better overarching finish, um, to it, or or its point could have been better, that it chose to make. The mo-wow. Yes, the mo-wow and the plot and the philosophy are needlessly complicated and attempt to describe a sense of morality that it doesn't consistently back up, which becomes muddled because of the like basically complicated elements in the plot. Yeah, and which it's... only uphold the existing world, which is flawed, but say that it's not flawed. It's funny because some of the plot lines and stories are exceedingly complex, but then the ending is like so simple. And you're that's like, what I mean. Yeah. And you're like, wait, what? Couldn't you have? Couldn't you have made the ending like a little bit more like nuanced? Where like, okay, they get this thing, but then like this other thing, like they have to like sacrifice this other thing. They like they they don't get. They don't get everything right, but instead they get. All the characters basically get their cake and then they get to eat it as well. Um, Except the dead ones, but. Yeah, but even the dead ones, Fuck them, they're it's dead. magic. It's magic. Like you can still contact the dead with in that right. world. Right. Um, I think my least favorite part. Hmm. I mean, aside from what you just talked about, because that's basically where I was going to go as well. Um. I'm actually glad that you you summarized that though, because yeah, that's that's that that was the big horcrux of what I wanted to talk about of this story. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> uh, I think my least favorite parts of this is actually like the the love stuff that they try. Like, I think you 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 kind of like got to this point. Um, earlier when you were talking about how. Rowling definitely struggles in writing like inner relationships um, and kind of like showing the emotions between characters like she just heavily relies on tropes of oh well you're a girl and I'm a guy so let's try to get into a room together so we can talk alone and then maybe make out a little bit which yeah, seems that like everything that she tries to put in there instead of like like i'm not saying that they need to like have sex that's not what i'm <laughs> saying i'm i'm saying that like maybe they could like 
talk about something more or like a character could just not be ching chong like a cardboard cut out of an asian character um maybe uh harry and ron need to not like sword fight each other with their dicks like constantly over hermione and then harry ends up with Ginny, uh ron's sister and who who has no personality in either the books or the movies it's just no he liked her all along from book two that that was definitely yeah remember when he saved her from that huge snake now harry gets to show her his snake harry (laughs) there you go like that's that's basically like how i read that uh the ending there which there was hardly (laughs) sorry i couldn't help myself there there was like no like there was no connection between them throughout. It was just like, oh yeah, that's my sister. And Harry's like, yeah, she's 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 pretty. I like her. Okay, I guess we should we should get together because uh, saved her before. Um, it, it's yeah, it's like I, a it's I like agree. a trifling thing to like it's a it's a trifling thing to quibble um, over like. I guess I'm in my mind having a pretend argument with J.K. Rowling now about her ability to write romance, but um, I don't know if it's an effort thing or if it's a skill issue. But there's some there's something For sure there. Or a skill issue. There's something there with uh, her uh, the the product, if you will, lacking as far as romance goes. But I would also argue, by and large, that's something that a lot of um, coming of age stories really struggle to show um, is that romantic part because I mean, it's tough to do. um, And also it is um, just a common trope. Like it's very generic to have that in your story as well. So yeah, that's probably like one of my least favorite things, or at least something that that could have been done better. And, and if, like I would argue, it would have been better if it hadn't really even been been there at all, um, at least not mentioned as as much. I think it's important to have it in something like a building Zerman, like the feelings of an adolescent coming to terms with not only sexual awakening but feelings of romantic interest. Like you have to. No, I I agree with you from a coming of age story. I just don't coming really... of age. <laughs> I just I just think that this these stories would have been enhanced had it like it if she's going to either choose to do it this way, which is like how it was or not have them in there, I would choose to not have it present. Obviously, the best option would be to have it and be done better to where it at. he's actually like Harry, Ron and Hermione and all the characters are grappling with that that coming of age aspect. Well, so something that uh, is definitely worth noting is that the first three books were they were popular when they came out, but each one was still being like edited by someone else. And by the time the fourth book came out, the series was so popular that Rowling no longer needed to have someone come in and say, cut this, cut this, cut this, because it was right. already proven that she could write. And so when that happens to artists and they stop having someone else edit their work they and they're surrounded deluded. by yes men, yes, and they become over, they long winded. And that's yeah. the biggest flaw of those last few books other than the seventh book. But 
they, they're just Skill really issue. long. They have yeah. A, yeah, there's a lot of extra stuff in there, and part of that is romantic entanglements and plot. Like the fourth book has the Yule Ball, yes, which stuff like that makes sense to have in these stories, but do it in a way where it incorporates the world. Like, what is it about this that's magical? How is magic incorporated in this? That's different than just it's a dance that teenagers go to, and oh. Harry kind of wanted to go with Hermione, or Harry wanted to go with Cho Chang, but Cho Chang went with Daz Gabadoo, and Hermione went with the Victor Crumb, and Ron get to jealous. But like, you can have those interpersonal relationships work, but what makes it interesting in a book series like Harry Potter is how the fantasy world around it alters it. Yeah, and Rowling yeah. just doesn't do that at all, and I think that's because Rowling had too much success early and i think that's why the later books sort of fall apart so she may of... also struggle to either come up with mechanics or situations or like she she uh, what i'm saying is i'm not trying to psychoanalyze her here uh mm-hmm. i'm gonna try not to but she may also struggle like romantically <laughs> like she may struggle with understanding that or maybe she forgot what it was what it was like as a teenager. I have no idea. She was divorced at some point. I imagine she remarried. But but anyway, like I think the point we're driving at is basically that if you are gonna set out to do a coming of age story, you need to figure out what perspective you're gonna have as far as like figuring out one's sexuality and like love and romance um yeah anyway uh favorite part of or favorite parts or aspects of this could be anything it could be characters it could be scenes it could be the um objects or mechanics within the the stories I mean, I think the world building is really super strong up through the first four books. Like it takes stuff that is just common in mythology and blends it together in a way that feels original. Like I said before, like her mechanics of magic are not necessarily too well defined. And the power levels basically just become Dragon Ball Z after the fifth book. But <laughs> um I like the combination of stuff. I think the morality issues um, are never really explored, but like there's really funny things that make sense for a child to think about that is really, really obnoxious when you think about them as adults. So like um, the Weasleys being obsessed with muggle objects is really funny as a kid and really dumb as an adult. Hmm. Um, yeah okay i see where you're driving at like you can't you can't have ron's dad be like i want to build a radio because isn't that crazy that they have radios you can't have him doing that in the same room where ron's mom created sentient life which is what happens like she just (laughs) creates life in it and it's like nah that's we can't that doesn't make any sense what are we what are we doing here Right, like you can't have it both ways. You gotta, you gotta choose one of them. But you don't, because when it's for kids. So, um, like outside of that, like I just like uh, some of the original creatures that she came up with are cool. Uh, 
like I would say Hagrid's plot lines. Like the stuff where Harry is just friends with Hagrid, that might be my favorite part of the first few books. Yeah. Because he uh, just goes there and they hang out and they're just good friends. I would I would definitely agree with that. Um, like Hagrid is kind of a simpleton and puts everyone in danger all the time, including <laughs> Harry, because he just doesn't understand that like you shouldn't have giant poisonous spiders. But the, Hagrid, the part that hold on, Hagrid is the is Steve the crocodile hunter of the of the magic world. Yes, I would say my favorite scene in all of the books, like my favorite maybe chapter, is the chapter where Harry takes the wizard cocaine and goes like oh, instead I of like forgot about that. Yeah, like he needs to like go to Slughorn and accomplish something, and instead he's like, I'm just gonna go see Hagrid, and they're like, What the fuck? <laughs> what's wrong with you and he's just gotta see Hagrid guys and then and then they just have the funeral for the spider which results in Hagrid and Slughorn getting drunk and then Harry like maliciously guilt trips Slughorn into giving him what he wants like it it's an actually well-written scene where Harry is kind of evil and it shows a darkness in Harry that they never really fully explore and they need him to be on wizard cocaine to do it yeah. But also just Hagrid's beautiful relationship with Aragog, the evil spider who only loved Hagrid. <laughs> Literally only loved Hagrid. Wanted to eat and murder everything else. Uh, yeah, I, I was I was going to say Hagrid is definitely one of my favorite characters. Um, Sirius Black is is probably my favorite character um just from like a tragic sense but also from like uh an ability to write a mystery around him for like an entire book uh and then like build off of his character in the remaining books because there are a couple of father figures for harry right um to take over from harry not having his father anymore because he was killed and Sirius kind of takes on the mantle of that uh Dumbledore does as well but Dumbledore is kind of like in the background knowing everything but then not revealing it like you said um and Sirius Black is also kind of that way in in some ways um well what's interesting is they're both very aloof like they're just enigmatic characters naturally part of that I think might just be Rowling's ability to write um compelling male care like adult male characters mm-hmm. and have them be well defined other than just oh yeah they're elusive and there's something very forlorn about Sirius Black's character like he always feels like he wants to do more for Harry and wants to be better friends with him and know him better but they can't and I think that's what makes his death so tragic is that it feels like they were finally getting close to developing a real friendship or a father-son bond and then he just gets kablamoed and yeah well his death also is is rather climactic and anticlimactic because he is he is like either pushed or like magic pushes him through that veil no he gets he gets kablamoed by the wand the wand shoots the green bullets and bellatrix lestrange green bullet shoots him 
So he doesn't go through the veil? He does. After getting Kablamo'd? Yeah. Damn. She Vada cadavers him, and then he his body just falls through it, and it's just meant to be like an interesting visual. Oh, I totally thought he was like also pushed through it. Like he wasn't killed first. He died because he was pushed through. Maybe that maybe that's what happens in the movie. And I'm misremembering the book. Well, the but, movies go off the rails because yeah. they just stop saying spell names. It's just people shooting. They literally are guns. Right. That's why you refer to them as guns. Yes. Um, there's that. So so serious. But also, um, Jesus, we didn't even talk about Gringotts. Oh, I'm pretty boy. sure we, we said Neville's name three times. We kind of touched on Snape at least. Like, there are some elements here that are very... We, we talked about Gringotts at least once. Yeah, Gringotts is definitely not uh, talking about the globalists or, or anyone like that. Crooked-nosed um, goblins. Who control the banking system. Hmm. Tricky... I've glo- I mean... Uh, J.K. Rowling Trans definitely people. wasn't trying to do that there. Um... Yeah, I wonder what J.K.'s uh, thoughts have been on um, that war, that conflict in the Middle East. Anyway, something that I was going to say, aside from Gringotts, um, is that I think I think the story does a good job of making you care for characters and also like providing not so much uh, of a black and white perspective on some of the characters because some of the characters like. Like Sirius, for instance, as well as like James Potter, are shown to like be bullies in the past, right? They like prey upon other kids and like make fun of other kids, and they also are sadistic uh, at at times. You could say those so are the like, only flawed character, other than the mustache twirling villains. The only flawed characters who have a gray sense of morality is James Sirius. Lupin, Dumbledore, and Snape. Yeah. The five so, most important pseudo-father figures in Harry's life. Yes. So what I was going to say is that that's what I find fascinating about those characters is is showing that aspect to them. And obviously the enthymeme there is that Harry is supposed to like learn not to do that from them, right? Um, and to be well, caring... But- yeah, that's a good scene in the seventh book where Lupin is like, I want to abandon my wife and child to come adventure with you. And Harry has to be his father and be like, bro, you got to be there for your kid. Like, I don't know what to tell you, but that's not right. You can't do that. And Remus is like, my bad. Yeah. Um, but also so that by what- that point, Harry's already learned what to do and what not to do. Like he's already become the hero that he needs to be. But the thing that I was building up to is, uh, I I don't really have the words to explain this, but like there's gotta be a concept for this in a story where like a character is going through pain or there's a character who is like completely helpless at that time. And is like, cause like one of the curses, I forget which one it is. I think it's the Chrysiatus curse is the one that like inflicts like, a lot of pain on you and you're like kind of writhing right mm-hmm. i think rowling is really good at at 
causing like immense pity from an audience's perspective on someone who is who is like struggling and like for just like whimpering in like a corner from pain from either someone who is directly trying to cause that pain like a death eater or from someone else um i think those scenes stand out to me in like each of the books where someone is just dealing with immense pain and then obviously someone has to like either come and save them or or something Mm -hmm. like that so i think those are built in really well throughout the stories yeah like Um, neville's parents are really fascinating for that yes because they've literally been just cruciati she is cursed into like senility because they're not even dead right they're alive but they're just like brainless husks yeah who live in saint mungo's yes um so like i think that's something that's like really easy as a kid to kind of like gloss over uh if you get like you know all caught up on the butter beer and wands and shit uh but like as an adult like holy hell that's pretty intense stuff going on there like this kid's parents are sent to an asylum because their their brains were fried from someone essentially uh yeah electroshocking their their brains um it is kind of dumb that they never figured out a way to reverse that but they needed the tragedy so neville could be a hero yeah yeah um so i guess that's what i'm i'm trying to say is that i think that those are are bet those are well built into the story where most of the time they don't feel contrived like she's just like oh we need some pity points here for this character um like it, it actually feels like that's what would happen in the story whereas i've read other stories and just been like wait what why are they hurting this guy here or something like okay we know this guy is the the bad person but like they don't really have cause to harm said person here I think what um, you're what you're describing is pretty much the Dobby is the embodiment of that. Yes. Which shows the full range of Rowan's ability to write that character. Because mm-hmm. when you meet Dobby, he's pitiful, but he's also immensely powerful and he serves someone else. So you both feel bad for him and hate him because he's like a little gremlin who's like torturing Harry. And as the book progresses and you learn more about him, you just feel worse and worse for him. Because he's like internalized the sense of slavery and lack of control in his life so mm-hmm. much that he just self harms, which, as yeah. you said, is just super dark. It's like, holy shit. Because going back and like reading that stuff where it's like Dobby just starts smashing his head again, just it's like, Jesus Christ. But then it's, you know, all kind of ruined where they sacrifice Dobby just for a cheap boy at the. Uh, midpoint of the seventh book yeah yeah it's and that that's another issue with some just killing characters for the sake of like well we need to raise the stakes more because these gobbledygook MacGuffins aren't put aren't doing the trick anyway yeah that's that is something that a lot of stories suffer in the last um book or last chapter but uh the other thing that i was going to say is that some of the concepts i i'm going to try to not forget some of them but one of the big ones that i actually am am kind of incorporating into my story uh that i'm writing is the pensive i have a different mechanic to access memories um in the story i'm writing but i really really like the scenes with the pensive 
uh, well, one, like the name, which gets gets to like linguistically, the terms that Rowling uses in the stories really help to enhance the magical effect of them because the term sounds like what that term would actually be if it was a thing in our world right so like it do, it doesn't take much for your your mind to jump to that and just accept it whatever it is and obviously like pensive like you're sitting and thinking right you're thinking about something that happened in the past like that's easy to to talk about but like a squib right like that's an easy term that you can just accept readily as someone who is incapable of magical powers despite being a wizard or a, wi- or a witch um but the pensive is really cool right it's it's a bowl that you can like dump your memories like using your wand into and then like like you go into the bowl itself into those memories um yeah i just really like that concept a lot um I mean, obviously, like there are other other things that she coined, uh, like apparating, um, disapparating, uh, stuff like that is is pretty interesting. Diagon Alley and Hogsmeade are both fascinating places onto themselves, um, especially as a kid when you're reading through them, right? Experiencing those those places like. The world building aspect of them is so strong. So what's the what's the evil part of Dag and Alley called? Can't remember. Are you trying to find that? No, I just forget what it's called. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Alley. Right, darkness. Light, good, darkness, bad. Why does that exist? <laughs> I don't ask why. Uh, on on Nocturne Alley, I think that's a good a good stopping point. <laughs> Unless you have any anything more to add. I mean, you you talk- briefly mentioned about the meaning of the work as a whole, or what what you wish it was, but. I didn't really say what I wished it was. I was just saying the way in which it fails to have like a cohesive one that's anything different than Star Wars, which is that some people are predetermined to be bad and some people are predetermined to be good. Well, that's the meaning of the work as a whole. That's that's this meaning of work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Star Wars is more interesting because at least there's one morally gray character who goes back and forth where Snape is just good the whole time and they trick you into thinking he was bad. Yeah. Um, Which I do. I guess he was bad in the past. Like, but I appreciate that they trick you because he he and Sirius are kind of like similar in that way where there is mystery around them where you're like, is he bad? Is he good? Oh, wait, Sirius is good. But Snape is like kind of good. Wait, he's bad. Oh, wait, he actually just is one of the, the, the best characters throughout the story. Right. That's what you learn at the end of the story um for what he was attempting to accomplish um yeah i mean i i think i think that the these stories are as we said greater than the sum of their parts 
um, despite the seventh book kind of falling off in a lot of ways. Your your video here has just become you like bouncing back and forth. I don't know what happened, but it's <laughs> it's it's very very funny. If you click the the two page thing at the top and then like minimize somewhat and then maximize it should fix itself that's how i fixed ah, it. ah there we go okay yeah that it, it was it was very funny yeah, the only other things i really have to say are about sort of the adaptation and the ways in which elements of the adaptation work and which don't uh and they speak more broadly to changes in filmmaking which i think came apart because of the harry potter series um like the harry potter movie series uh the shift in like filmmaking from practical effects to purely digital effects, mm -hmm. um, the franchising of everything, block yeah. blockbusterification of stories that otherwise didn't need to be, splitting up final chapters from one story into two. Jesus Christ! Yeah, these are all things that started yeah. with the Harry Potter movies and um, and Twilight. Yeah, soon after started with the Harry. Yeah, the. Twilight just copied Harry Potter because Harry Potter worked. Yep. Um, but the because there are more interesting adaptations, and I think this is just a very good fantasy series to get started on to dive into those later. Um, we didn't necessarily talk so much about like the cliches that this story has per se. Um, but I think they're common enough that pretty much anybody listening to this would already know what they are like Christian allegories and fairy tales and stories about stuff like prep schools and things. Um, people are very familiar with that type of thing, like where the, the characters do poorly in school or what happens in a fairy tale with elements that are really dark and possibly tragic, but end up being good in the end. Mm. Yeah. I mean, in any hero's journey, uh you can you can lean as much as you want into being jesus christ embodied right. and she does that very much so up until he meets god uh aka gandalf i mean aka dumbledore uh who offers him a choice to go to heaven or go back yeah yep um so yeah that's the christian aspect uh partially uh you could say but yeah i mean harry potter as you said is a is a solid starting place it's a solid blueprint uh if you're a, a decent writer or even a great writer i don't know if i would say that she's a great writer she's a great world building writer i would say um she's very good at that i would say she's a great world building writer um but I wouldn't call her a great writer. Obviously, as far as success goes, you would you could call She's her the best a, writer a great ever. writer. Yeah, right. That, yeah, it's from a money making perspective. Um, yeah, Su success wise, there is no writer better. But she's right. better than, than the people who wrote the Bible. Like, yes, de depending on your definition of that. But as far as storytelling goes, um, I think she's a, a, a good a good writer. I would not say great. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the point I was making is these stories are a solid blueprint. If you are a good writer or a great writer, if you write a coming-of-age series, 
basically. Uh, they're super popular right now. So, yeah. Go for it. Any final uh, witchy, wizardy thoughts here? Um, I mean, I, I really want to talk about Game of Thrones. Ooh, and, and I view yeah. this as a good stepping stone for that, mainly because... Shit, it, and then Lord of the Rings! Well, Lord of the Rings, you could talk about, yeah, much more oh. and Because you could view um, Game of Thrones as almost like a direct response to Lord of the Rings. Yeah, let us let us know in the comments. Let us know what uh what what other series you would like us to. How do to. we how do we even comment on this? YouTube, podcasts. How do you comment on a podcast? Email us. I don't know. Where's our make the where's Spot- our email? It can make the spot. It can make the Spotify uh interactive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for uh, sticking around this far. Time to go. And no, we're not doing Fantastic Beasts. Adios.